Hello and welcome to Argy's Poetry Pickle Jar, the only place where we pickle the poems we know you'll like. Each week we get in a world-beating poet to come in and talk through a poem they think you'll love. But this week we're going to be doing something a little different. Uh, you may or may not know that I have my own brand new debut collection out with Penned in the Margins this October. It's called Improvised Explosive Device and I'm really happy to share it. Um, I've been doing this podcast for a long, long time. Uh, it's completely free and I never ask anything of you. Uh, but this time I thought it would be a good time to give you a bit of extra insight into the book uh, and to ask you to get hold of that book. So in this episode, I'm going to unpack some of the challenges and joys I experienced during the creation of this book, take you through a couple of the poems and hopefully give you a little insight into the process. You're listening to Argy. Poetry Pickle Jar. This is not something everyone talks about. It's not like no. other, you know, it's not like, I don't know, like, you know, gr grief or loss or different things or, you know, cancer. You know, people don't, people, especially this kind of subject, it's so sometimes politicized and, and different things that it's just like people just don't really talk about it day to day, just won't talk about it or they get very nervous around it. So when, because of that lack of that kind of being able to, it's something natural that you just kind of talk about or you have a view. I, I think that as well then, it's really difficult for parents or families to kind of know what what's actually going on sometimes you can sense that something doesn't feel right but you can't put your finger on it sometimes that was the voice of Nicola Beniahia a counsellor based in Birmingham she works with many families affected by radicalization and extremism and her son was lost to ISIS when he decided to take a trip to Syria and tragically lost his life there it was conversations like this that inspired so many of the poems in the book and I've tried to take a few sprinklings of the interviews and put them into this 20 minute episode. And so let's reverse a little bit because the story starts a bit further back. A few years ago, I began to become obsessed with extremism and radicalization in the UK. Initially, this was connected to the constant threat of terror attacks in the UK and my own family's connection to the LTTE in Sri Lanka but my interest quickly grew to all aspects of the political spectrum. I wanted to try to understand what it would take for someone to carry out an act of extreme violence. What were the variables involved and how could I understand the reasons behind the actions and turn those into snippets of writing? Uh, so I focused on many different types of violence from hate crime to racism we face each day, to the type of violence that makes the news. Um, early into the process, I was in the kitchen on a family holiday and my auntie was talking to me about how it was for her and my cousins during the 83 riots. Um, my auntie went on the run with her husband and kids. She knocked on many doors. Some didn't open, but one did and they quickly went into hiding. And my auntie and former uncle spoke a lot about what they would do if anything happened to their children. Uh, the poem I wrote following the conversation was one of the first. Uh, it opened a connection between me and the subject matter of radicalization. And there are a few more autobiographical pieces in the book. Uh, but 
in majority, I set out to try to not label which voice was which, um, to keep the speaker of the poems in a void without labels. Uh, and the longer I went in through the process, uh, the more difficult this proved. I'm going to read you Salad. Salad. My auntie cuts the cucumbers slender as the tissue on the inside of a cheek. If you're going to go, she tells me, wouldn't you rather go in style? A firework, an explosion, a man setting himself on fire outside the parliament. He made his dine into a kind of bouquet. No one wants to go without a fight backed into a corner. It's a matter of considering the options, she says, scraping in the tomato. Who to call, where to go, how it feels, pressed snug to a breast. The supermarket, the approximate distance from the entrance to the aisle, where the eggs meet the bread counter, how a button feels below the weight of a thumb. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you my family seated for lunch. Auntie laughing about the buttering of my bread. It feels like I am seeing her for the very first time. I set out to read in a whole lot of fiction and non-fiction on the subject of extremism. This was a period of note-taking, of reading, a sentence, and then using it to trampoline into a poem. I loved the process. It led to me visiting a handful of rallies and protests, which inspired me to dig even further. And it was lockdown and I was writing three poems a week. Usually every four poems something would happen. And then I received a grant from the Arts Council and I began to work with more purpose. It wasn't an idea anymore. I had money and some sort of direction. I interviewed a handful of people affected by extremism. These were former and current members of groups including the EDL and National Front as well as radical left-wing groups. Um, leaders of groups and then also those affected by religious extremism and hate crime. These interviews became the inspiration to create in the majority of the collection of poems. It became apparent very quickly that the subject matter was huge, it was vast, it was always changing, it connected hate crime, terrorism and international politics. It seemed to be completely underpinned by man's basic need for violence. I had the very basic question of what steps does it take for someone to reach an extreme act and I soon realised that the factors were so much more nuanced than that. In fact, every single person I spoke to had their own journey within it, so many turning points, moments when an intervention could have occurred but in the end a small minority of individuals end up making some extremely poor choices. Here's Dr Hilary Pilkington explaining it a whole lot better than I could. And I mean, that's that's the thing that I learned from doing the loud and proud work more than anything else. It's a spectrum. And, that you know, really, you know, and so I, that's interesting what you were saying about how many steps would it take? So, you know, we kind of have a gateway theory about everything, don't we? You know, every social problem, we have a gateway theory about it. And I'm increasingly I, I, I've always been a little bit skeptical about it, but I wonder whether there is I mean, clearly some people do have trajectories. But most people, I mean, I used to have a poster of Lenin on my wall when I was a student. You know, I was doing Russian stuff and I was obsessed by, you know, a real revolution when everybody else failed. You know, and of course I accept all of the, the thing, negative things. But I don't have a poster of Lenin on my wall anymore and I wouldn't defend, you know, all kinds of things. 
people just engage for a while and it's kind of important that they do and then they move away it doesn't mean that they won't retain some of that whatever you want to call it you know it's horrible to say but banal racism or you know kind of everyday racism and so on but we can deal with that if we discuss it and we open it up and we make people aware of the consequences of that and I think just to say everything that we hear that is wrong then becomes Nazism and fascism and, and things that you can't pull back from do you know what I mean then we lose up that potential to you know, to allow people to, like you were saying, you know, kind of shock and maybe provoke. Yeah. It was this hour and a half conversation and Hillary's extensive collection of non-fiction books and theories that gave me an approach to the interviews. Hillary used an ethnological uh, approach to her interviews. And this meant that over the years she spent with the EDL creating the book Loud and Proud, which inspired me a lot. She never passed judgment or shared her views with them. This gave her the space to research without argument. And there are positives to such an approach, especially considering the lack of voice that participants have. But I also knew that I was also a minority coming into a space with people who may judge me just on my looks. So I needed an approach to give me more confidence. Uh, and I followed Hillary's advice, using my voice only to encourage discussion. Giving people a voice was at the center of the impetus to write the book. I think the greatest thing that came out of the book was my own understanding and empathy towards people I had once judged as being beneath me somehow. Opening up conversation was a deeply affecting journey for me. I think my conversation with Ivan Humble stands out as one that really got me. Here he is talking about the time he was mistaken for a Nazi. Yeah, so you were going down there with that mentality of we were going to fight, or do you, were you just going down yeah, there? We, we, honestly, we were going down there just to protest. Mm. I think we did have a point when we started, mm -hmm. but then it just got lost along the way. Do you know what I mean? With everything. Mm. Once we were anti Muslim 100%, do you know what I mean? But when you're labeled far right and Nazis and that, it kind of rubs off on you. Yeah, how does it? It doesn't turn you into Nazi, but what it does, it, it annoys you to the point that you might be at a demo. I've seen it happen. So, I mean, you've been at, you're at a demo and somebody's shouting Nazi at you. And somebody will put a Nazi salute up. Not because they're Nazi, because you're going to call me I'll act like one. Yeah, I know. That's really interesting, isn't it? I've seen it done and I've done it myself because when you're on a in a town that you don't know, you, you're on your defensive anyhow, do you know what I mean? People call you, when you've got groups of people who surround you, if you're in a group with three or four people, you'll get surrounded by groups of 10 or 15 and they're all shouting at you. So it kind of forces you to live up to the label a little bit because they're annoying you, you do that to annoy them back. Yeah. And then that's when the, the media seems to take the picture and portrays it as hundreds of Nazis on the demo. This conversation took me back to growing up when I was a kid. I remember a shopkeeper asking me to empty my pockets as he thought I'd stolen something. And obviously I hadn't. The next time we went back in, we vandalized his shop. It was like I was fulfilling his expectations of me. It's like that labeling had pulled me temporarily into a different body. So just think for a little bit about the labels put on us throughout our lives and how difficult they are to shake. Consider the impact that some of these labels could have on us. Uh, and that's the that's the crazy thing, do you know what I mean? It's, once you get involved in this, it's hard to shake it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? it's, even though I've been left six years, seven years now, 
I said I've had the odd problem pop up because of my past, do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, it's quite a nightmare, really. I think yeah. once you're labelled, your future is, is definitely tainted. Do you think by, what do you mean, by society or by the people who... Well, society, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's like, <coughs> look at some of these young lads at 16 years old getting put in prison for terrorism mm. because they had a document or something, do you know what I mean? Although it's bad to have one of them documents, how can they physically prove he was going to use that for an attack? But they then get charged with terrorism. They yeah. get put in prison for terrorism. So when they come out and say, I don't know, six or seven years at 25, mm. they're never going to be able to move on with life. They've got terrorists on their on their record. And that's not something that's going to disappear after three years. That's going to be on there for good. Uh, Evan Humble was a real inspiration to me and inspired specifically a few poems, but this poem. Uh, called Ways of Being Heard. Ways of Being Heard. I did what anyone would, marched until my throat ached, until I realised violence was the language of negotiation. What choice do we have when our voices are quieter than Britney Spears walking her dog up the strand? Can't you see the poetry in throwing a fire extinguisher through the window of the Ritz? Minders, they say. But the city can burn so beautifully loud if you let it. You ever had a shopkeeper grip you like Gatorade? Tell you to empty your pockets? I was 14. I opened my mouth to shout but soil came spilling out. Piano black from every orifice. There's no use crying. Some things are hard to say. Here's a flip book of words. Anarchists, fairies, woke militants, Tories. Does it hurt yet? Next time in the shop, I pocket a handful of bonbons, fork tuna behind the birthday cards. Thugs, hoodlums, yobs, scum. A man is on a march in Rotherham, tells me being labelled Nazi hurts like hot poker. All that soil in his esophagus, he reaches his hand out. It's not what he believes, it's what he knows will hurt. Clamps his fingertips together. Stretches them toward the sun. One of the major challenges with the book was creating poems that gave new eyes to problems we've seen and heard about for many years. This is often difficult. It's a balance between thoughtful, empathetic and honest um, responses, but at the same time being entertaining, exciting and taking risks. Suspicion was a topic that returned again and again. I spoke to lots of people who felt rightly or wrongly that they were being watched. This constant feeling of surveillance is an issue in many communities. There's distrust towards security forces, teachers, parents, and this can lead to resentment and individuals veering away from discussion or debate. I remember a youth worker in Bradford speaking to me about Prevent, the government uh, agency that deals with terrorism. He said he would never flag a young person up to prevent because he couldn't guarantee the situation would be dealt with professionally. Instead, he encouraged the young people to speak freely without the fear of being reported. I've had a similar experience working with young people for over 15 years. I've worked in difficult settings and three times I've flagged things up as worrying and concerns to extremism. One of those times led to prevent being called in. They interviewed the young person without an adult present or a known adult present, uh, which led later to the young person and their parents coming in to have a go at me. The parents said I'd ruined his confidence. And in truth, I think I kind of had. 
It is so difficult to decipher what to do in these situations. Often making changes to affect change in our young people is the hardest challenge of all. I wrote a series of poems that were inspired by the idea of suspicion. Probably one of my favourites is one that many people um, told me to cut out. I came across the story of a boy called Azar Ahmed. Azar Ahmed, aged 20, from West Yorkshire, was found guilty of sending a grossly offensive comment on Facebook. His comment read, all soldiers should die and go to hell. And it broke the law, apparently, and Azar did uh, 240 hours community service. I thought a lot about that and context and how people's words can raise concern and suspicion. When I considered the word suspicion, I immediately thought about an affair or some sort of sordid secret. So I tried to pull these two ideas together. In one part of the poem, a police chief is following his wife having an affair. In another part of the story, a man is being watched for extremism. The coming together of these two situations attempts to show the ridiculousness of our suspicions. Let's see if it worked. Have a listen to this. Suspicious looking individual. All soldiers should die and go to hell, the low-life fucking scum, as our Ahmed, 20. While you are reading this, someone is reading you, fuck all British values. You really shouldn't have read that. You're red flagged. And an MI5 newbie is calling his boss. A boss is calling his wife. A wife is calling her secret lover for an hour of horny sex. This is escalation. Just this morning, you spoke to an extremist next door. How was your weekend? Enough to shift you from moderate to alarming. Alerting a crack team while the boss's wife takes it doggy over a kitchen counter. That's extreme. Everyone is staring at you drinking coffee at a known terror hotspot. They have an Italian coffee machine. Your text reads, I gotta stay strong for these infidels. It's racy enough to rustle the leaves of the newbie, the boss and a SWAT team. All of them crammed in a DHL truck, eating Krispy Kreme, taking pictures of you. When really, the boss is texting his wife. Sorry, I'm working late. You really shouldn't have bought that tape and polyfiller for the bathroom, nor bumbled about in a sarong after prayers. That afternoon, you're on the extremist hot list. You're wanted, a threat to national security, and the boss just got a text from his wife saying, that was ducking hot, which incites the order to raid. And sure enough, they blaze to a door, pull a man from his bed, stuff a pair of stockings in his mouth while his wife shouts, it's not how it looks. So we've reached the end of this episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you've got something out of it. Uh, there was a few people mentioned uh, in this podcast, Dr. Hilary Pilkinson, her book, Loud and Proud, and even her other books are really inspiring and unpick a lot of uh, the questions around extremism and radicalization. Um, I also reference Ivan Humble, um, who also goes into schools and speaks about his experiences of leaving the EDL, and also Nicola Beniahia is a counsellor in Birmingham and she specialises in dealing with families that have um, been affected by radicalisation or extremism. Um, you can also get my book on pendinthemargins.co.uk or you can message me, tell me what you think at rg.org. There's loads of free writing prompts there. Um, I do workshops, I do one-on-ones with people. So the best thing you can do is go check out online 
buy the book and enjoy it. I'm going to leave you with one last interview which captures the real joy of this project. Um, it's with Ivan Humble again and it covers him telling the story of how he left the EDL, how he met a Muslim man, he thought that this guy was building a super mosque and how that whole thing turned in his head and ended up him having a conversation with the man. Conversation is what it's all about for me. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this. Goodbye. The first thing, we, we spoke a little bit, and I said to him, right, about this church, mate, is it going to be a super mosque? And he said to me, no, it's not going to be a super mosque. And I thought, I still don't believe you. You're lying to me. So I said, prove it to me, just being a bit cocky. He went, all right. What? Yeah, okay, I can prove it to you. Um, in two weeks' time, invite some of your lads with you. Um, we have a planning meeting. Amazing. So we, we went to this planning meeting, six of us, and it was the most boringest three and a half hour meeting we've ever been to. But at the end of it, he wasn't lying. How did you feel you six going to that? That must have been like a short film. <laughs> Mate, that was quite funny because <laughs> we, I live 47 miles away from Ipswich. Okay. So getting there was a bit eventful on the morning. We turned up half hour late. We went in this room. There's people from 18 different nationalities in the town. The police were there, the council there. And we walked in for, oh, we just sort of sneak around the back. And Manuel actually said, uh, it's a representative from the English Defence League. And everyone looked at us and I thought, <laughs> but everyone was respectful to us. Okay, great. Because he didn't lie to us, there was no mosque, there was no prayer room. Yeah. It was just a community centre for everybody in the in the thing. So we got talking, do you know what I mean? Because I guess he cemented a little bit of trust with me by not lying to me. Yeah, for sure. And so we, we got into conversations, do you know what I mean? And talking to him was a breath of fresh air, I guess. He sat me down and said, right, have your say. And I, I'm not going to lie to you, I pushed the buttons, I provoked him. I tried to say things that would make him angry. He sat there and listened to me run on for an hour. And then he just casually went, you finished, Dave? And we just sniggered at that point. It was quite like an icebreaker. We laughed. Mm. And they said, well, you've got some valid concerns there. You've got quite a few misconceptions. Mm. I just went, teach me. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Explain to me. So we carried on talking. And we're still great friends today. It was because of him that I'd probably turn my back on the EDL because he'd become more than a friend. So he's like my father figure.